All right. You will turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 will primarily be in uh, chapter 19 through 24. But uh, as we begin our, our time uh, this evening, uh, I do want to just sort of recap some of the things that we've already looked at. So again, in the evenings, we are going through this series on how to read the Bible, and one of the things that we've been beginning with is uh, how, how to understand the covenants, how to understand the relationship between the covenants, and how the covenants unfold. Uh, and, and we began by looking at the Noahic covenant with the covenant with creation, and then we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, and then tonight we'll come to the uh, we'll begin by we'll begin looking at the the Mosaic covenant. But I do want to just give a, a sort of a quick summary of some of the things we we've looked at as we uh, move in uh, to this next section, which um, we'll we'll probably spend at least several weeks. Uh, looking at, we'll, we'll look at the Mosaic Covenant tonight from Exodus 19 to 24. Um, we'll look at it uh, again at our next meeting, um, which, which won't be next Sunday. We have Third Sunday Fellowship, but after that, um, we'll, we'll look at the book of Deuteronomy, where the covenant is renewed, um, and then we'll, we'll probably uh, spend some time sort of uh, addressing some, some questions uh, as to the implications uh, of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, but again, just as a, a quick recap, we, we began by looking at the covenant that was made with Noah. And we saw in the narrative of Genesis that the world had become quickly, uh, completely corrupt. That as the Lord looked at man, all he saw was wickedness. That all of the thoughts, all of the intentions, everything that man thought continually was evil only. Right? And there was sexual perversion that was taking place in the day, and there was one lone man who stood out amongst this sea of wickedness, and that was Noah, who we're told that in contrast to all of the rest of the earth was a man who was blameless and righteous for the Lord. And so the Lord, um, in effect, starts over anew with Noah. He brings a flood upon the whole world. And, and if you remember, um, when we looked at the account of Noah, we saw all of these, these parallels between the flood account and the creation account that are, are very intentional. Moses, as he's writing the book of Genesis, frequently throughout it, uh, makes all of these parallels between different figures and different events intentionally to cause us to recognize the relationship between the two. All right, and so when we looked at the, um, the, the account of the flood, we saw you know, some of the parallels about um, the, the spirit of the Lord or the, the wind of the Lord hovering over the waters in both the creation account and in the flood account. We saw the, the parallel of, of the dry land and then followed by the vegetation appearing and and we saw the, the parallels between Noah and, and Adam as, as well. And, and part of those parallels, or probably one of the central aspects of those parallels, is that 
both Adam and Noah are being presented as this kind of uh, royal priestly figure, right? A, a king priest, right? Um, so, so with Noah, for example, um, we see that Noah is a man who offers sacrifices, right? He, um, he serves in that sort of priestly role in the same way that Adam was to, to work and serve in the garden of Eden, which is where the presence of the Lord uh, dwelled. And, and we saw as well in, in that garden account that that, that very language of, of working and keeping the ground is, is only found elsewhere in the Bible when it's talking about the priest, the, the, the Levitical priest working and keeping the temple. And of course, the temple is, is a reflection of, of the garden uh, of Eden in many ways. And then, of course, there's the, the parallel of, of, of kingship. Right? Adam the, and the man and the, the woman made in the image of God are, are given this command to have dominion over all of the earth and to subdue it and to fill it and multiply on it. That's a, that's a royal command that they are to carry out God's rule on the earth as image bearers. And that same thing happens with, with Noah. He's given a, a very similar command to multiply and to fill the earth and the exact language of having dominion is not used but of course um, you know God says that all of the animals of the earth will be given to him so you've got another parallel there of of Noah and his family ruling uh, over the earth right so you've got all of these parallels that are intentional there to, to draw a connection between Noah and Adam and the covenant that's made with Noah and the covenant that's made at and, and with creation. And, and we saw as well that the covenant with Noah establishes the relationship between God and man and between man and creation, although now, of course, it's in light of the fall. Um, again, as, as we just mentioned, dominion is again given to man, only now the animals are in fear of and in dread of man. Uh, man, again, he's commanded to be fruitful and multiply. He's made in the image of God, although now, because of the fall, that image has been uh, corrupted. Um, this covenant also, the, the covenant with Noah, it's, it's worth noting, is, is never annulled. Right? It remains, in effect, still today. And it continues to um, have a covenant sign, right? The, the sign of the bow being in the clouds, continues to bear witness to the ongoing um, presence of that covenant even today. God promised that he would never again flood the earth, right? As long as the earth remains, he'll never again flood it, and the bow in the clouds is a continual reminder that he is keeping those promises and that that covenant still remains uh, uh, until today. Um. Another thing that we, we, we saw, and I want to point this out too, is that the covenant with Noah was not a, um, a new covenant in that God was, um, if you remember the language, cutting or making a brand new covenant that had never existed before, but as, as we saw, the language communicates the idea of establishing a covenant that had previously already existed, right? So... Um, so, so here in, in the, the covenant with Noah, we are sort of pointed back to the covenant that's made with creation 
and God is basically reestablishing that creation covenant, now with some changes in light of the fall, but in essence still the same kind of covenant, establishing the relationship between man and God and, God and, and, and man and creation. Right? And so, so then we, we looked, um, secondly, uh, at the covenant with creation, or the covenant with Adam, and uh, the covenant with creation was, of course, God's original work at creation that established the proper relationships between God and man and between man and creation. And uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, Adam in the garden was to be a kind of king-priest. Both him and, and Noah are parallel in that, in that fact. Um, and then, of course, the, the covenant at creation was broken And as a result, a curse came upon the entire world. And and yet we saw as well that in the midst of that curse, God, what does He do? He gives a promise. Genesis 3, verse 15, the the first gospel promise that um, from the seed of the woman, who who is now under a curse, from her very seed is going to come one who will bruise the head of the serpent, even though the serpent um, bruises his head. Um, Genesis then focuses on and and traces the emergence of this promised offspring. Uh, That's one of the things we looked at. This is basically what the rest of Genesis is about, is tracing the the coming of this offspring ultimately through a a particular line of people. And uh, and we saw that this was um, one of the early hopes of, of people who... Uh, believed in this Genesis 3.15 promise. And we saw some evidence of this as well. We looked at just the, the naming, you know, how people named their children in light of the promises that God had made. Um, we looked at the, the naming of Cain and Abel, if you'll remember. And Abel just means vanity. Um, Eve's just, you know, she, she, gets cave, she, she gets Cain, she acquires him from the Lord, and, and it's like, what is Abel for, right? I'm thinking the, 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 the offspring is coming through him, but of course that ends up proving not to be uh, the case. Um, we looked at Noah as well, whose name meant rest, and we, we looked at how that, um, that name was given as a, as a hope for uh, the promised offspring uh, to come. And, and then, of course, this hope of a promised offspring continues right down to Abraham as well, whose lineage is traced through Noah's son, Shem. And then this brought us to uh, the covenant with Abraham. And uh, the covenant with Abraham is really where God begins to narrow his covenant making specifically to the people through whom the promised seed would come. So, of course, those first couple of covenants are these sort of worldwide covenants, and, and now they're going to begin to narrow Uh, In other words, if the covenant with creation or or Adam and the covenant with Noah were basically covenants with the whole world because both of those men were representatives for the whole world, now God's covenants are going to be made strictly with one family uh, on the earth. And it is through this one family that blessings to all the nations will come. And uh, that's what the covenant with Abraham is largely 
about. And, and so we looked at sort of the main chapters in Genesis where that Abrahamic covenant is made and the promises are given and it's ratified and signs are given. And we looked at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the, the initial calling of Abram before the Lord renames him. And, and we saw there were six promises that were made to, to Abram there. One is that he's going to become a great nation. Two, the Lord is going to bless him. Three, his name is going to be great among all the nations. Four, he says you will be a blessing to all of the nations. Five, he says you will also be a curse to those who curse you. And then six is that he would inherit lands that the Lord would give him. And, and then, of course, we see Abraham obeying God, and, and he goes to the land of Canaan. And then we, get, we, we uh, looked at Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6, where, of course, Abram's wondering how these particular promises are going to be fulfilled in light of the fact that he has no offspring and that his wife is old. Naturally, she can't have children, so he's, he's wondering, you know, how is this going to take place? And, and, of course, it's in that chapter that the Lord officially enters into a covenant with Abram, and, and we see the whole covenant-making promise where God again reaffirms his promise to, to make Abram's name great and to give him offspring. And then in Genesis 17, the covenant is established and it's given a sign. Of course, throughout Scripture, every covenant, by and large, has a sign attached to it. And the sign of this particular covenant made with Abraham was the sign of circumcision. We see this in Genesis 17, verses 9 to 14. And then after the sign is given, God promises Isaac to Sarah. And, of course, Abraham, you know, again, when he hears this promise, he initially laughs at it because Sarah was so old. Uh, but nevertheless, right, God says you know, she's, she's, going to have, uh, she's going to have a child and that he will establish his covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, he says, at this time next year. Genesis 21, we come to, Isaac is then born. And then in Genesis 22, Abraham goes through this test, testing his faith. Does he truly believe that God will keep his covenant promises and his faith in those promises is demonstrated through the story of him being willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, believing that God will still keep his promises even if Isaac dies because God is able to raise him from the dead. Right? Like that's how strong his faith at that point had become in God's uh, promises. So then the, the rest of Genesis, as I said a, a few weeks ago, the rest of Genesis is really the story of God keeping his covenant with his people and then ending with the Israelites going into Egypt to escape the famine that had come upon the land of Canaan that, that they were uh, promised would, would happen. God had said 
to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his future family and offspring <coughs> excuse me, would become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And that's where the book of Genesis concludes. Right? Uh, Abraham's family, his, his offspring, are now in Egypt. And, um, you know, initially everything is fine there, uh, but over the course of many years a new Pharaoh arises, uh, one who has, in essence, forgotten um, all about uh, the relationship that uh, had been established between Joseph and the rest of the children uh, of, of Abraham. And so when we come to the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all four of these books are about what God does for His people after their 400 years in Egypt, um, many of which were, were, were then spent uh, and as actual slaves uh, under wicked Pharaoh. And, and in these books, not only do we find the story of God saving His people from slavery, but of course we find the making of another covenant. And uh, of course this covenant is sometimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant or the Israelite Covenant. The New Testament refers to it as the, the Old Covenant. Um, sometimes just the word or, or, or the phrase, uh, uh, what, what the word, the law, can refer to the whole covenant. Or the law, the prophets, and the writings can actually refer to the, the covenant that's, that's made. There's, there's different terms, but the point is that a covenant is, is made <clears throat> with the people of Israel after they are uh, redeemed from, from slavery in Egypt. Um, Exodus 19, verses, uh, or, uh, 19 to 24 is where this particular Mosaic covenant is first made. And uh, with this covenant, God establishes the way that He's going to relate to the people of Israel. Uh, in order to understand the nature of this particular covenant, though, uh, we have to, of course, always begin with the text. Right? That's, our, that's our starting point. Um, we don't want to begin when we're trying to wrap our minds around the relationships between different covenants, and, and especially as we'll see in the coming weeks, the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. But we don't want to begin with a certain theological construct or a view about the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant, and then try to figure out how we fit these particular texts into that system. That's not our starting point. We do not want to begin with a certain view of how the Old Covenant is structured or ordered and make arbitrary divisions based on that assumed structure. Neither do we want to do what I think the, the error of dispensationalist theologians do is to arbitrarily break down all of history into these particular epochs or uh, dispensations, time periods where God is um, in essence dealing with people in a different way or, or to put it another way um, providing salvation to people uh, in different ways, right? That's a, 
That's a particular theological system that we don't want to bring to the text. We want to, again, begin with the text, see what it says, and then try and construct our whole Bible theology uh, from that. This is what, these are some of these errors, I think is what, what sometimes um, happens among uh, dispensationalists. Um, I think it sometimes happens also among some covenant theologians, and I don't think this it tends to create more problems than it does clarity. So, let's just consider, as we, as we look at this, I, I want to I begin by considering the broad structure of the Old Covenant as it's found in Exodus 19 to 24, and then we can, you know, tonight and, and over the coming weeks, then we can start drawing some, some implications uh, from this and, and various conclusions. Um, so, first of all, in Exodus 19, after the Lord saves the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, we're told. And, and Moses then goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there we're told that the Lord speaks with him. And the Lord tells Moses that he's going to enter into a covenant with the nation of Israel. Moses is to say these exact words to Israel, beginning in verse 4, Exodus 19, verse 4. For Moses is to say to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. So, God has done a unique work in fulfillment of His promises that He had made long ago to Abraham to redeem Abraham's offspring from slavery in Egypt. And he said that was what was going to happen in Abraham's own day. Your offspring will be in Egypt, right? And, and he will have to bring them out of Egypt. And this is the Lord describing how He is fulfilling and, and has fulfilled those promises made so long ago. And now, because the Lord has redeemed the people of Israel from Egypt, now He says, as a result, we're going to enter into a covenant together. Me as your God, and you as a particular people among all the peoples on earth. Verse 5 says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, let's just notice a couple of things there. One, who is the covenant made with? This is an, this is an obvious an obvious question with an obvious answer, right? This covenant is not made with Egypt. It's not made with the Canaanites. It's not made with Moab or Ammon or any other nation. 
This is a unique covenant that is made between God and the nation and people of Israel. But again, he says to them, if you, you Israelites, you who are descendants of Abraham, if you obey my voice. But then what? It's the second. If you obey my voice, they will be, he says, his treasured possession. Now, what does that mean? That they're going to be his treasured possession. What does that mean? Well, in, in the text, grammatically, this is explained in verse 6. He says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what it means to be a treasured possession. He's explaining that in the next verse. They're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As God's treasured possession, the people of Israel will first of all be a kingdom. They will have a royal status and a royal commission. The nation as a whole will continue. The royal commands originally given to Adam, then Noah, and then Abraham. They will be a kingdom who are to carry out God's rule and dominion on earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, I'm emphasizing here the same themes that we've seen so far in various covenants where one of the aspects of being in covenant with God, whether you go back to Adam or Noah or Abraham, is a royal status and a royal commission to exercise God's rule on earth. To carry out His commands and to reflect who He is on earth. That's one of the things that the Israelite nation is called to do. But they will not just be a kingdom. He says that they will be a kingdom of priests. That is to say that they will be those who are separated unto God and devoted fully to Him. They will be those who minister in His presence. Again, just as Adam was placed in the garden to work and serve it, just as Noah was a priest who offered sacrifice to the Lord, just as Abraham was a priest who served as a mediator between God and man and at times had to intercede for those who had sinned. And he had a unique relationship with the Lord in the same way that this idea of a priesthood was present among Adam and Noah and Abraham, so also will it be the case for Abraham's offspring, the whole nation of Israel. They will be a kingdom of priests who will continue this role as, in essence, king priests. 
the nation will have God's presence among them. Of course, in the tabernacle. It was one of the things that we had seen as we were going through the book of Numbers. This whole idea of building the tabernacle and then later the temple so that the, a priesthood would be established. Among the many things that are going on there is just the, the visible representation of God's unique presence among the nation of Israel in um, distinction from the rest of the nations. The, the land that they are to enter into in, in Canaan, this whole land is to be a kind of new garden of Eden where God dwells with man on earth in the land. If they obey His covenant, that land is going to flourish again. It, it's going to be like the garden. Right? There's going, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a, no curse in it. Right? They're, they're, uh, they're, their land is going to produce fruit abundantly. They're going, to, they're going to farm in ways that you wouldn't even think of farming. Right? They're going to have years where they do no farm work at all. Right? They're, going to, they're going to allow the land to have a Sabbath rest and they're going to do nothing on it at all, and yet still somehow it's going to produce. It's going to be a, a miraculous land. Again, a place that is uniquely blessed among all the peoples of the earth and among all of the places on the earth. The people of Israel are to be holy to the Lord as a holy nation, and they will be holy because their God, whom they are to serve as a nation of royal priests, is holy. So, the covenant is introduced as a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And if they are faithful to obey the covenant, they will be this royal priestly nation. They will, in a very real sense, mediate the very presence of God to the rest of the nations. You have to remember as well <clears throat> where they were situated. So, so in the land of Canaan, in the ancient Near East, they were in the center of every single trade route. Right? When, when nations are trading between nations at that time, Everybody's going through Canaan. That's, that's one of the reasons why, in, in fact, in Hebrew, uh, Canaanites are, are often the same word. You could, you could translate as merchants, right? The, the whole land of Canaan was known as being a, a trade hub because that's where you got to go through. And, and so, in a very real sense, the nation of Israel, as other nations are coming and going through them, are to be a light to the rest of the people, so that as they travel through, they're traveling through this royal priestly nation, and this nation is mediating to the rest of the peoples the very presence of God. Now then, after God introduces this covenant with, with what, what in effect is basically a preamble, a preamble to a treaty that's very similar to other ancient Near East treaties that were made at the time. This, this opening section basically aligns with the, an, an ancient preamble of a treaty where there's, there's a background that's given and there's a relationship that's, 
between the two parties that's described. After this preamble is given, God then establishes a day when the nation of Israel is to assemble together officially to receive the words of the covenant. And that's what the rest of chapter 19 describes. The the nation of Israel assembling together to hear from the Lord. Then, in chapter 20, all the way to chapter 23, the book of the covenant is given. And it's given in two parts. The first part of the book of the covenant are the ten words. What we call the ten commandments. I think it's worth noting that the Ten Commandments are not here called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. It's a different word that's used there. And it's not as if referring to them, of course, as commandments is some sort of major error and we should never use the word you know, Ten Commandments again. The point is simply that there's here a subtle allusion to the creation account and the creation covenant. In the same way that creation is created by the words of God. God said, He spoke, and then it was. So also here is Israel as a nation in covenant with God being created by these words. These words are, are what is shaping the nation of Israel. So in a very real sense, they're being created at this very moment by these words. And so the first section here is called the ten words. Um, This is then followed in chapter 21 to 23 with the second section, which is called the rules or the judgments. So you can see this in um, Exodus 21 verse 1 where it says, now these are the rules or the judgments, the mishpatim that you shall set before them. And most of these judgments or these rules here are examples of ancient case law. In other words, they are describing a variety of situations that were prevalent on the ancient world and it's prescribing various ways to handle these cases in light of and according to the ten words. So there's a a close relationship between chapter 20 and the giving of the ten words and chapter 21 to 23 with the rules or the judgments. So we might say that the, the second section, the judgments here are the ten words that are then applied to a variety of different cases. Then when we come to chapter 24, the covenant is ratified with a covenant-making ceremony that is similar uh, to what we looked at in Genesis 15, where uh, God enters into a covenant with, with Abraham. So here, Moses and the nation of Israel assembles together in chapter 24. And then notice in chapter 24... Verse 3, excuse me, says that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord 
Right? These are the words. There's ten words, ten commandments. He told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, the two sections. In other words, he, he reads both sections, or he, or he just explains to them both sections, the ten words and the judgments that go along with those ten words. They then respond after they've heard all of this by swearing that they will keep everything that the Lord has commanded them. Then on the next day, Moses, we're told, builds an altar. And surrounding the altar are twelve pillars, that uh, each of which represent one of the twelve tribes of Israel. With the altar in the center, of course, representing the presence of God among the twelve tribes of Israel. And then some of the men from Israel bring sacrifices. And when they do, the whole book of the covenant, which is described as both the ten words and the judgments, the whole book of the covenant was again read aloud in their hearing, and the people again swore that they would keep the covenant. After which, Moses takes some of the blood of the offerings that they had, that they had brought, and he sprinkles some of it on the altar, again representing the presence of God, and he sprinkled another portion of it on the people of Israel signifying the fact that now the nation of Israel and God were joined together by blood. Right? It's, it's, like a, it's like a marriage covenant where in a marriage, the two become one flesh. And, and that's in essence what's happening here. They're being joined together by, by blood, by this, this ritual of, of blood sprinkling. And the covenant is ratified. Now, um, this is the basic structure. It's the basic overview of the old covenant as it was ratified at Sinai. Um, we're going to look at its renewal next time in Deuteronomy. But here, as, as we're looking at the sort of the broad picture of how the covenant is structured together and who enters into it, and, and how it's ratified, I, I want to I just recognize a, a few things here. Okay, One is that the covenant continues the theme of royal priesthood that is found in all the other covenants. Only now it has been expanded to the whole nation of Israel. If they obey God, they will be a kingdom of priests. And that's just an important theme to keep in mind as we consider all the covenants. Because we're going to see the same thing again with the covenant that's made with David. He is a kind of royal priest. He is a king, and in a sort of a very unique way, he, he at times will wear the priestly ephod and will offer sacrifices. He orders um, the Levitical choir, right? I mean, he's, 
he's carrying out priestly duties in a very uh, unique way. And then also, of course, when we come to the New Covenant, we see the very same thing uh, with reference to Christ and with reference to the church. So it's just an important thing to keep in mind. Second, the covenant here is made with a single nation. I think that's also important as we begin to think through how all of these covenants fit together. No other nation was under this covenant. Indeed, no other nation was aware of this covenant, except if they had passed through Israel and learned of the covenant or learned of it through word of mouth. This was made with a particular people at a particular time. To put it another way, this covenant was never made with a single Gentile nation. That's also important to understand. Exodus 19 to 24, which comprises one whole book of the covenant, is made with a particular people. And then finally, the literary structure of the book of the covenant divides the covenant, as we've seen, into two sections, not three. You have the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments, and you have the judgments, the the, the rules. Um, You put those two together, and that is what comprises the whole book of the covenant. That's what the whole nation hears. That's what they say they're going to obey all of that. That single book of the covenant with two divisions, that's how they're understanding the breakdown and that's what they're entering into. It is not divided into three parts. The old covenant, in other words, and I'm going to get a little um, feisty towards my covenant theologian brothers and sisters here. The old covenant is not divided into moral, civil, and ceremonial law. That's not a division you ever find in Scripture. They're not making that sort of division. No, all of those distinctions, all of those what we might call different kinds of laws, if we're going to make the division of moral, civil, and ceremonial, they're all mixed together in one single book of the covenant which is important to keep in mind, I think, because when we look at how the Old Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and reaches its end in Him, and as the author of Hebrews says, becomes obsolete because of the New Covenant, what we will find is that the New Testament authors are not operating with a view of the Old Covenant being divided into three parts. Two of which, ceremonial and civil, are obsolete. And one of which, namely the moral, is still in force. No, the Old Covenant as a whole 
has reached its end. And as we'll see, that does not mean that the Old Covenant no longer has any use for us. It's sometimes sometimes that, that's an objection. It's like if, if, you, uh, if you're saying that the whole Old Covenant has become obsolete, which includes moral law as well, there's no use for it anymore. That's not true. That doesn't follow. That's not what the claim is. Just trying to make the careful distinctions that I think are present within Scripture itself. This does not mean that the Old Covenant, of course, no longer has any use for us. The question just becomes, how do we apply it in accordance with how the rest of Scripture applies it? That's the question. I'm I'm an Old Testament guy. I love the Old Testament. I think it is vital for us. Uh, When Paul speaks of all Scripture, right, being God-breathed, he's primarily thinking about the Old Testament because most of the New Testament had not been written at that point, right, or at least maybe maybe half half of it or so. He's primarily thinking about the Scriptures that Timothy had been raised up on. That's, that's the Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets and the writings. It is, of course, not the case that the New Testament authors, even though they say that the Old Covenant is no longer in force or has become obsolete in light of its fulfillment in the New Covenant, that does not mean that the Old Covenant has no use. The question just simply becomes... How do we apply it in light of its new covenant fulfillment? And I don't think it's the case that we divide it in those three parts. Moral, civil, ceremonial, because that's not a division that they make. Now, that's going to be a discussion that we'll get into at a a later time. We'll look, again, we'll look at the uh, Mosaic covenant from the perspective of, of Deuteronomy and the covenant renewal, um, and then afterwards we'll, we'll, we'll look at a little bit more detail um, on our relationship to the old covenant. But of course, um, that's also going to require us to, to look at the new covenant in particular. So we'll probably certainly have a time after we look at all the covenants, we'll, work, we'll try and bring all of this um, together. But that's sort of what I'm going to look at tonight. The first Uh, the the making, if you will, of the Mosaic Covenant as it's made as a whole in Exodus 19 to 24 with a particular nation, the the nation of of Israel, and what it was calling them to do. Again, to be a royal priesthood. Uh, To be a people who would carry out God's dominion on the earth and who would mediate God's presence to the rest of, of the nations. Uh, let me, let me uh, stop there. We're, we're out of time. And um, I'll close with prayer. And then if you guys have any questions, um, uh, we can go from there. Well, Father, again, we, we want to understand your word as you have revealed it. We, we want to understand and know what you require of your people. And we want to know how to use all of Scripture to our prophet, and we want to see 
how all of Scripture ultimately points us to Christ and the work that he would accomplish in the new covenant. And so, Lord, I, again, I do, I do pray that as we are wrestling and thinking through uh, the whole Bible together, uh, Lord, that, again, you would, you would give us clarity, you would give us wisdom, you would cause us to, to look at your word, to study and to restudy, to pray, to seek your guidance. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name.